The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Remain standing with me this morning as we read the 119th Psalm, verses 113 to 120. This is the Word of God. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise, that I may live, and let me not be put to, sh- to, my, put to shame in my hope. Hold me up, that I may be safe, and have regard for your statutes continually. Your spurn, all who will go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgment. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, we gather together this morning as a holy people. People chosen and called and set apart. Set apart unto you. According to your good pleasure, for the sake of your good purposes. Father, you have done this magnificent thing. And even now, Father, you are making us more holy by the day. You're working by your Holy Spirit within us to help us become what we already are in Christ Jesus. And Father, we recognize that that process is oftentimes very unsettling and even painful. But Father, there is no option to stay still. There is no option to remain deformed in the image of this world. So we come as a people desiring to be reformed, to be molded, to be shaped, to be made into the image of your Son. Father, we know that you do this by the working of your Word, through the power of your Spirit. So we ask you to do that this morning, to have your way to do your work, to cause us to leave this place changed. Father God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We will jump right into the text. We continue reading through this magnificent portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. As David said, this is the Word of God. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. And we must receive it as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in your son's precious name I pray. Amen. So as I said this morning, we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. So I was listening to some sermons this week, and I came across one by a man called Derek Thomas. Derek Thomas is a Reformed pastor. He, um, he grew up in Wales in the United Kingdom, but he currently serves as senior minister at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. So apparently when Dr. Thomas first arrived, he was an assistant to then-senior minister Sinclair Ferguson. Can you even imagine what those staff meetings were like? We know that when this man arrived, he was told that his first preaching duty, his first responsibility with handling the word was that on Sunday nights, he was going to preach through the book of Ephesians. And he had great angst about this, sitting under a man like Sinclair Ferguson. He'd written commentaries on the book and really just a masterful handler of God's word. And so Dr. Thomas looks at him and says, are you, are you sure about this, that I'm the man to do this? And are you sure that the people are ready for such a thing? And he looked at him, and I can't do the accent, but he said, you know, dear brother, there comes a time in the life of every Christian when they need to be Ephesianed. Apparently that's a verb, to be Ephesianed. As soon as he said it, I immediately knew that's what we're doing. We're being Ephesianed. That through the working of his word, through the power of his spirit, as we sit week after week. How many times have we read this same passage? Surely most of you almost have it memorized by now. And we see that what God is doing through this, what he's doing with our time together in this place, is he's, he's building in our minds and in our hearts just this massive picture of who he is. This magnificent picture of the way that he always works for the sake of his own glory. At the same time, he's working for our greatest good. Even in this first chapter, as Paul reaches all the way back into eternity past, and he looks forward all the way into eternity future and just stretches out the whole of redemptive history before us. We see the magnificent way that the triune God is working to accomplish, then to apply to our lives the very thing that we most desperately need, redemption in Christ Jesus. So what we see is that God is providing for us here as we are being Ephesians. He's providing for us here this robust theological framework that the whole of our Christian life just seems to hang upon. This solid place that we can keep coming back to whenever our mind plays tricks on us. Whenever our heart deceives us. We've got this wonderful word to remind us that all we need to do is quit thinking about ourselves so much and fix our eyes upon Christ. And so I don't I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to, I don't want to over-romanticize this book. And I certainly want to do, don't want to do it to the detriment of any others. We know that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it is all good and perfect and powerful to accomplish God's will in our life. But I really do believe, I firmly I pray and I believe that we're going to look back with great fondness someday. That we're going to look back someday and we're going to thank God that he saw fit to gather us together as one people in one place so that we could be Ephesians together. We, we spent a lot of time really, really picking apart the details. And so lest we get lost, lest we miss the forest for the trees, allow me to pull back just for a moment and give you a very quick recap of where we've been. Paul says that he has been chosen by God as an apostle of Christ Jesus. This man called Paul, he is writing to the Christians who are in Ephesus. Paul calls them the saints, that is holy ones. Those who have been set apart, set apart from the world and called, separated from the world and unto God. This holy God has made them a holy people. So Paul speaks to these saints who are in Ephesus, and he speaks to the saints who are here today. Because Paul makes clear that a saint is just a Christian, and a Christian is a saint. So he says to the saints who are there in Ephesus and to the saints who are here in this room, he says that we are to bless God because God has first blessed us with innumerable spiritual blessings. He says that the grounding for, and the very first of these spiritual blessings, is the fact that he has chosen us in Christ Jesus. Paul says that this choosing, this choosing which God has done, it took place before the foundation of the world, before we existed anywhere other than the minds and the plans and the purposes of God. Therefore, God's choosing, it was not based on anything within us, not based on anything that we had done, not based on anything that we would do, It was an absolute gift of grace 
the sovereign will of God, nothing but his good pleasure, according to his sovereign decree. In short, God chose us unconditionally. But as I said, he chose us in Christ. It was based on Christ's merit. While we had nothing to merit ourselves, while we had met no conditions in and of ourselves, it was based on the work, the perfect life, the atoning death, the powerful resurrection, the intercession of Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father. It was based on all that Christ was and all that Christ has done that we were chosen. In short, his righteousness was credited to our account. And we're told that this was the beginning. This was the basis of all of these spiritual blessings which come to us. It is all found in the person and in the working of Christ Jesus. And we're reminded that we can never separate the blessings from the Savior. We must never think that we come to Christ Jesus to receive something else. That we come to Christ Jesus to receive Christ. We come to Christ Jesus because in him is our only hope. In him is our greatest treasure. In him is all that we should long for. So as I attempted to show you last week, the purpose of God's choosing is that we would be a people who are holy and blameless, holy and without blemish. Now these words, they're sometimes used interchangeably, but they're in no way identical. You see, holiness, as I said, it, it first points towards our status, to be called out of the world and set apart unto God. Holiness speaks primarily to the fact that we belong to the holy God. But, but then it does speak to an inward quality, an inward reality of, of moral uprightness. Not only uncommon by title, but separated from all that is ordinary and profane and defamed in this world. While blamelessness it indicates a lack of deficiency or any kind of contamination from sin. It's a, it's a quality of spotlessness. It's a visible virtue that God works in the lives of his people. You might think about the animal sacrifices that the Old Testament required the saints to bring into the temple. They were called holy and blameless or holy and without blemish. The sacrifices that were pleasing unto God, those that he would receive, they not only had to be set apart from all that was ordinary, but they had to be spotless. They could not be deficient or defective in any way. And so what is true of them physically must be true of the saints spiritually. We must be set apart from the world and spotless without blemish. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says it like this. We can show the difference between these two words in this way. Holiness denotes a state of inward or internal purity. Blamelessness means an external condition of purity. The picture is that of a fruit that has no specks upon it, no little portions of incipient decay, no putrefaction. It is perfect in its entirety, both inside and outside, holy and blameless, separated and set apart from the world and untainted and unstained by the things of this world. Not only in the, in the unseen recesses of our heart, but in our daily walk, that we are a people who are holy and blameless, completely pure in every way. As you walk through the, uh, the letters of the Apostle Paul, what you'll find is that he finds great delight in speaking about the saints in this way, constantly reminding us that this is who we are. We see the same kind of words used in Colossians 1, where he says that you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So that we're to be internally holy. We're to be set apart. There's to be an internal, a moral uprightness in, in the recesses of our soul and then outwardly in our walk. We're to be spotless. We're to be pure. But that above this, we're to be above reproach. We're to be guiltless. That the saint is a person about whom allegations cannot be believed. The true saint is someone to whom accusations cannot cling. That truly in every way, we are pure, we are morally upright, we are blameless, we are spotless before God. So it's clear that God is also eager to remind us about this. That that's the purpose for which he has chosen us. Because you see, mankind, we're, we're constantly wanting to come up with all our own reasons why God would choose us. We're constantly seeking, what is God's purpose in my life? And more often than not, we're going to turn it into something fleshly. We're going to turn it into something earthly. And so it seems clear that God is very eager to remind us, no, this is the purpose. This is the reason for which I have chosen you. This is why I have called you out of the world, that you would be pure, that you would be holy, that you would be blameless. But you must see that implicit within this, it wasn't that we showed signs that holiness and blamelessness were somehow in our future. It was quite the opposite. God chose us as sinners so that his name might be glorified, so that the world may stand in awe to the praise of his glorious grace as he turned hard-hearted haters of God into saints, lovers of Christ. He might take rebels and turn us into friends. 
that this is all the work of God. And because of that, he chose us while we were yet still sinners. And not just in this life, but in eternity past. Before time or space or even the world existed, in the mind of God, the whole of humanity, we were already wretched and sinful and guilty before him. In Revelation 13, we read about a beast. Now, you don't need to worry about who this beast is or when this beast is coming or what this beast has come to do. None of that is necessarily a requirement to understand what I'm going to say to you next. But we're told that there is a beast there and that, verse 7, all authority has been given to it over every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose names have not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, for those of you that are continuing to struggle, those of you that are still, you have these questions swirling around in your head with regards to the doctrine of unconditional election. You wonder, has God truly chosen a people before the foundation of the world? Is that really the reason why I have come to repentant faith? I would ask you to consider these passages in Scripture where he speaks about this book, about this book of life. Revelation 3, 5. Revelation 13, 8, as I just read. Revelation 17, 8. Revelation 20, 12 through 15. Revelation 21, 27. Philippians 4, 3. Luke 10, 20. I'm confident that if you take the time and you read through the way God speaks about this book of life, what you'll find is that anyone whose name has been written in this book before the foundation of the world, that they are guaranteed that they will end this life in repentant faith. That this is the basis for eternal life. This is the reason that you have hope. Hope for the people of God is resting in God's promises for tomorrow, today. It's trusting that the God who has said he will do, will do. God says it, therefore it's a done deal. You will not fall away. You will not worship false gods. You will be raised in glory expressly because the God of the universe has written your name in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. The God of the universe wrote your name in his register. Therefore, you will be saved. Now, the flip side of this is expressed in uh, Revelation 20, 15, where we read that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Dear friends, we cannot overstate the importance of this book. We cannot overstate the importance of God writing your name, whether or not he has written your name in the Lamb's book of life. It will determine your eternal destiny. Not because there's something magical about the book, but because in that book is expressed the will of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God, the things which God has promised to do. But I want you to think with me about what this book means. What was the title of the book? Because I think that even in the title of the book, God shows us something about the way he thought of us before the foundation of the world. We read that the book is called The Book of the Life of the Lamb, who was slain. In eternity past, God was writing down the names of men in his register. These are those who are guaranteed that he would bring to repentant faith, that they would endure in repentant faith to the very end. And he is saying that these are the people who will have their sins covered by the blood of the lamb. This is how God saw us. In his mind and in his purposes, there was already need for the lamb to be slain. Do you understand? This is the covenant of redemption. In eternity past, the triune God was in perfect agreement. They were in absolute unity about this plan of salvation, this rescue mission as I see it here in this first chapter of Ephesians. God the Father would send God the Son to die as a perfect and sinless substitute to accomplish the redemption of his chosen people. God the Son would willingly, joyfully come to glorify the Father, to glorify himself, and to win this people. Then at the appointed time, God the Spirit would come and apply that redemption he would come and call those very same people from death to life. He would bring us to repentant faith in Christ Jesus. He would seal us for eternity, and he would assure us that we belong to God. All of this ordained and settled and done before the foundation of the world because it rests on the eternal and unchanging character of God. And right there at the heart of it all, right there in the middle of it all, the object of God's gracious and redeeming love, sinners in need of salvation. There would be no need for a lamb to be slain there would be no need for him to give his life. There would be no need for his coming to ransom sinners were we not in the infinite mind of God already sinners. Because before the foundation of the world, there were no holy people for God to choose from. There were no righteous people for God to elect. There were no deserving people for God to place his love upon. In the mind of God, and I must remind you, that things which are in the mind of God are much more real than anything that you smell or taste or touch or see in this world. 
that in the mind of God, before there was a world, the whole of humanity was already wretched and fallen and in desperate need of salvation. This is why we had to be chosen in Christ. There was no other basis. Once God had decreed the fall, once God had determined that he was going to save rebel sinners like us, there was no other basis on which he could choose us. It had to be in Christ Jesus. Only he had the merit. Only he had warranted the love of God. Only he would accomplish the things that must be done. So God chose us in Christ. Completely unworthy, unlovable, sinful men and women. Before the foundation of the world, that's who God had to choose from. So as he looked out, as it were, over the whole of sinful humanity, an entire race of depraved traitors, he chose you. That through the life and death and resurrection, intercession of his son, through the powerful working of his Holy Spirit, he would undo all that was broken in the fall. That he would redeem and restore and reconcile us to himself. Not only forgiving our sins, but setting us apart, cleansing us, making us pure, molding us into the image of his son, that in every imaginable way, we might be a people who are truly holy and blameless before him. Now, I tried to show you last week, as I said, that because this whole thing is rooted in the eternal and unchanging mind of God, because the whole thing is grounded in something that took place before the foundation of the world, that so is our holy standing before him. That even as God looked upon the whole of sinful humanity and he saw us all as wretched sinners, as those who were opposed to him and opposed to his kingdom, that in that moment as he joined us to Christ Jesus, from that moment forward, he never saw us as separate from Christ Jesus. From that moment forward, he always looked upon us and he saw us as holy in Christ. That even, even as we live this life, continue to be surrounded by darkness and sin. Even as we continue to struggle in our own hearts and our own spirits with the sin and the, the pull of our own flesh in this world. Even when we willfully and joyfully sin, intentionally sinning against this God who has saved us, even now, by our union with Christ Jesus, we are already seated in the heavenly places. In the mind of God, as he looks upon us today, we are already holy and blameless before him. And so, I pray that as you think through this reality, as you think through the reality that God has not only determined that he would do this thing before the foundation of the world, but that it was settled, that it was fixed, that it was done, that it was secure. As we read the book of Hebrews, you have already been perfected. That this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ that we must preach to the world and we must constantly preach to ourselves. It's the declaration of a thing that has already been done, a thing that God did for us, not a thing that we must do for ourselves and not a thing that we must do for God. Saying that today you are seated in heaven, that today you are holy and pure, completely justified. As you are in Christ Jesus, his righteousness imputed to your account is you're completely justified and forgiven, found righteous before God. That in the eyes of God, this isn't make-believe. He isn't having to turn a blind eye. He isn't having to swallow hard. He isn't having to say things that he does not believe. That as God looks upon you and sees you in Christ Jesus, you are really and truly holy, as holy as you will ever be. That there is no act of sin you can commit in this world that's going to detract from that holiness. There's no act of righteousness you could do in this world that would add to your blamelessness because this was never about anything that you did in the first place. So consider again that verse that I drew your attention to on the last Lord's Day, Hebrews 10, 14. I paraphrase, but it says that by a single offering, by the shedding of the infinitely valuable blood of Christ, he has perfected us for all time. That even as we continue to, to work out that holiness here and, here and now, even as he continues to work in us to make us sanctified now, that's what it says. It says that we have been sanctified, that we are already once and for all perfected, even now as we are being sanctified. You see, the sanctification that we experience in this lifetime, the molding, the reforming that God does in our life, in this lifetime, it's proof that we have already been perfected for all eternity in heaven. But you see, the problem is that it can feel like the opposite because the sanctifying process that God leads us through, it's oftentimes, as I prayed earlier, painful. Discipline is painful. Fatherly correction is painful. Calling us back from the brink of sin is painful. And so the problem is that whenever our loving father disciplines us, the enemy is right there to convince us, you must not be his. You wouldn't be going through this. You wouldn't be suffering like this. You wouldn't be in pain like this if he truly loved you, if you were truly his. How can you say that you're a sanctified saint? How can you say that you're a holy one of God when you continue to struggle like this? And the shame of it all is the very thing that God has sent to assure you that you are his, because God is not a derelict father. God will not leave his children to run like wild dogs. 
And so the very thing that God sends into your life that should be the greatest assurance that we are his, the devil uses those to beat us and convince us that we're not. While at the very same time, those who are running like wild dogs, those who have never experienced the loving hand of discipline from God in their life, those who God allows to run and continue to enjoy their life in this sin, those are the ones that feel it oftentimes the most assured that they are his when the reality is that they are lost. So we must think very carefully about the way that we receive his discipline in this life. We must think very carefully about the way we think about suffering in this lifetime. And I know how hard this is to grasp. And I, I know that I keep coming back to it. And even now I stumble through it because there's this, this already a not yet tension that we feel all throughout the Bible. And it's, and it's tough to put into words. You, you know it to be true in your heart. You see it in the scriptures and you know it to be true in your heart. But it's so hard to put into words it can make even any kind of sense because there's nothing else like it. And so I keep coming back to it. And I keep grasping at the right words and I, and I keep stretching and try to put it out before you time after time to, to hope that you'll just get greater glimpses of it, greater visions of it. You'll see it a little bit more clearly week after week. Because the reality is that you must see this, and so few do. But the reality is that unless you see it, unless you come to believe this, you will never fully recognize. And, and, until you come to recognize that, it, that in Christ Jesus you are already seated in heaven, that, that your eternity is already set, it's already secured, it's already settled, that, that you can rightly receive the calls of Scripture to become holy, to be holy, to walk through this process of sanctification. This is why Paul always wrote the way that he did. He always tells us who we are before he tells us anything about what we must do. You notice that? He always delivers to us the indicative before the imperative. He always says, you are a holy people, now go be holy. You are a sanctified people, now go be sanctified. You are a people who are perfected, now try to walk in spotless, blameless perfection. Do you understand? Because we're going to come to so many passages of Scripture, the whole last half of Ephesians. You come to so many portions of Scripture where God is calling us. He's commanding of us to be holy. That this salvation, which is at the same time ours, completely ours, settled, secured, locked up tight. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Nobody comes in with an eraser. It's done. At the very same time, he calls us to work that out with fear and trembling. We recognize that there's nothing passive about this life of holiness. It's not like he picks us up and puts us on a conveyor belt and says, I'll see you in heaven. No, there's great purpose and intent. There's an aggressiveness to it. There's a single-mindedness to holiness. That it's all the working of God, but it's God working in and through us at great cost, at great effort. Think about the words of Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. He says, I worked hard. You people know me. You know the way I strive for holiness. You know the way I give my life over to holiness. But it wasn't I. It was the grace of God in me. In Colossians 1.29, he talks about being presented as mature before Christ. He says, for this I toil. I struggle with all this energy that he works powerfully within me. There's a struggle. There's a battle. There's a, there, there's a striving. There's a running. There's a wrestling. And we do it in the power of God. That he must change our desires. He must change our will. He must show us what holiness looks like. And then as he works in and through us, we labor hard for this holiness that is already ours in heaven. You see why it's so hard to put into words? Because there's this tendency within us to fall into one of two camps. To say, well, if it's already ours in heaven, what's the point in laboring today? Or if it's not ours in heaven and I can't earn it, what's the point in laboring hard today? So on Wednesday nights, we're working through the Ten Commandments together. And I remind you every single week as we come here that there is a still a place for the law of God in the life of the believer. Not only in showing us the character of God, not only in showing us how, false, how far short we fall and how desperately we need a Savior, but in showing us what a, what a life that's pleasing to Him must look like, that the law of God serves as a rule for our life. It lights our path. shows us how to please Him, how to honor Him. It shows us what we must shed as we seek to run this race well, as we seek to endure to the end, as we pursue, pursue personal and practical holiness. But you must understand that if you don't receive this from a position of security, if you don't receive this from a place of assurance that you are his, that your salvation is assured, that it's all already been settled, that it was all given to you as a gift of grace in Christ Jesus, if you don't come to this law with the confidence of your standing before God, if you don't receive this understanding that already today God is unwaveringly for you, then you will always be in danger of lapsing either into legalism or to lawlessness. 
legalism or to antinomianism. What will happen is you'll find yourself, by the way, are you tired of me recommending books yet? I'm recommending one more. Sinclair Ferguson, The Whole Christ. He unravels this more beautifully than anything I've ever read on the topic of how we rightly come and think about the law of God. How we're to approach the law of God as the saints who have been purchased in Christ Jesus who have our salvation already secured and the purpose of the law in our lives. But what you will find as you think rightly about this, if we can come to the law of God, if we can come to the command to be holy from the understanding that my position before God has already been determined and settled and done. There's nothing I can do to earn his favor. There's nothing I can do to lose his favor. If you don't do this, that you'll spend all your days grading your life. You'll spend all your days trying to earn favor and approval of God. You'll spend all your life believing that you have to make him love you. You have to convince him to love you. That he will only love you if you sufficiently meet all of his requirements. That you'll find yourself frustrated and resentful and in constant anxiety because you cannot ever become holy enough. You can't ever become sanctified enough. You cannot ever do enough righteousness. So you'll find yourself resenting the law. Worse than this, you'll find yourself resenting God. Eventually, you'll throw up your hands. Eventually, you'll say, what's the purpose? Because you'll you'll have created this image of God in your mind that is demanding and restricting and harsh. You'll see his his law as those very same things. It's demanding and restricting and harsh, just a wet blanket over the top of your life. And eventually, you'll throw up your hands and say, what's the point? Who can please this God anyway? What's the point in trying? I might as well enjoy the things of this life before I die. And you'll lose all proper motivation for personal holiness. Now, of course, you'll never state it this way. This isn't a cognizant thought. But the reality is that we see it in the lives of so many people that claim to be Christian. They live exactly like this. They have no ability to find joy in the call to be holy. They have no ability to delight in the law of God because they see the law as a ladder to be climbed. But they find themselves exhausted because they can't even get to the second rung. They say, I'm no closer to God than when I first began. I'm no closer to being holy than when I first began because in my own power, I can't climb this ladder. The whole game feels rigged. And again, I say we start to resent God. We start to distrust God. We turn our back on him. We turn our back on his law. And then what this does is it opens us up to the lies of the enemy. As he sneaks in and he whispers, just like he did in the garden, he tempts us to doubt the goodness of God. I sat right here on a Wednesday night, and we talked about the fall of man. Of man. We talked for several weeks about this. What I told you was, was the biggest problem, the biggest problem wasn't misunderstanding the law. The biggest problem was misunderstanding the character of God. That's what Satan attacked. God's not good, and he's not working for your good. Again, he paints a picture of God as restrictive. What does Satan do? He convinces you to look, to take your eyes off of the garden full of fruit-bearing trees and look at the one tree that's off limits. Again, he convinces you that God is restrictive. He convinces you that holiness could not possibly lead to your happiness. He gets in your head and he twists up the image of God. So we must come to this law. We must come to the idea of holiness with an understanding that it's been settled. In Christ Jesus, God is holy and completely and inalterably for you. He will never be more for you. He will never be less for you. He's not grading your performance. Therefore, you must stop. It's only then then you can rightly receive and understand what it means to live this life as a holy people. So the way that we do this is we keep our eyes fixed on him. As I said at the beginning, we keep our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ Jesus, who is in heaven. We keep preaching to ourselves Christ and his cross and the free grace that he purchased for us there. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Dear friends, you look to Christ in heaven. You trust that in Christ, you are there completely holy and secure. And it is then, it is only then that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can put to death what is earthly in you and put on the things of God. Do you understand? If you skip the first half of this chapter of, of Colossians, if you skip the reminder that you are already in heaven with Christ Jesus, if you forget the fact that your salvation is secure there with him, and you skip to the taking off and the putting on, you'll always fail. Do you understand? You're talking to dead men. You're talking to men who love the way they are dressed. 
You're talking to men who love the filth that they wallow in, and you're telling them, you need to be cleansed. And he says, of what? It's only when we see our salvation secure in Christ. It's only when we see our standing before God secure in Christ that then by the power of his working within us, we can take off the old, put on the new, and walk in holiness. Do you see it? So, in an effort to keep our hearts and our minds off of ourselves and fixed on Christ who is in heaven, I want, to, uh, I want to draw your attention to the last two words in this sentence that we've been considering together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So in the time that remains, I want to consider where's this whole thing leading? What's he talking about when he talks about before him? We know that positionally, right now, today, we are before him as we are in Christ Jesus, but this seems to be pointing to something else that's well in the future. That there's something that this whole thing is leading to. What's, what is the terminus of this whole thing? How does it end? What's the point to the story? And I believe that thinking forward in this way, I believe looking forward into eternity future and longing for that day, I believe that in that we will find great help, great encouragement as we seek to live this life in holiness. Now, I'll tell you that in my reading, if you come into my office, what you'll find is that my desk is almost always covered in books. I've got three desks, and somehow they're all always covered in books. And um, most of these books are big, hardback books, and a lot of them right now are commentaries on the book of Ephesians. Now, I don't start in the commentaries. I come to the Word of God, and I, I, I wrestle there and, and, and try to understand what does God actually mean by what he's actually said. But then I'd be foolish if I didn't go back and look at what great, powerful theological minds before me have said. And what I found is that there's some disagreement about who the him is that we're talking about here. If you look with me at the flow of the sentence, and I know you already know this, we've, we've lived in this sentence now for three months, but if you, if you look with me, it says that we are told to bless God, and we know that Paul has in mind here God the Father because he expressly says it, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So clearly it is the Father who has blessed us in Christ. He says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. So who's that he? Well, since we're called to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it seems that this must surely be him, that God the Father is the one who has chosen us. You still with me? God the Father has chosen us, it says, in him. Now we know that this hymn must be Christ because that's the way Paul talks all throughout this letter. It's the way he, he talks about everything in Christ. Faithful in Christ Jesus, blessed in Christ, predestined in Christ, redeemed through the blood of Christ, according to a plan set forth in Christ, obtaining an inheritance in Christ. I mean, it's clear he's saying that the Father has chosen us in Christ. You'll notice that more often than not, whenever I quote this verse, I always talk about God choosing us in Christ, even though it says here in him. I just assume that you all know that's what I mean by in him, right? So you've got... The first pronoun here, the he, at the beginning of verse 4, is pointing us towards the Father. We all agree about that? Don't raise your hand if not. The second one, the second pronoun there is him. It's clearly speaking about the Son. So who is the third pronoun referring to? By the way, children, this is the proper way to use pronouns. So who is the third pronoun referring to? Are we chosen to be holy and blameless before Christ? Or are we chosen to be holy and blameless before the Father? So grammatically, if we just follow that, Carrie Camp, quit smiling at me. <laughs> so grammatically, if we just follow the, the normal flow of, flow of, of thought, Right, if we just, just, just look at the, at the way that Paul is speaking, it seems like he, he must be speaking about the Father here, right? Like, that's the whole point to the sentence. The, the subject of the sentence is God the Father. But we, we do need to remember, I think perhaps, that in Greek, verses 3 through 14 are just one really long sentence. I've, I've tried to repeatedly, repeatedly tell you this, that what he's doing is he's showing us the way that the, there's this perfect unity amongst the Godhead, that we move from the work of the Father to the work of the Son to the work of the Spirit. But this thought, as it is presented to us by our English translators, they use punctuation to break it up. That's the way that we read. It makes more sense this way. And the subject of this first sentence, the one who is to be blessed, the one who is bestowing the spiritual blessings, the one who is doing the choosing, it is clearly God the Father. 
Beyond this, you can certainly find portions of Scripture where Paul talks about us someday standing holy and blameless before God. 1 Thessalonians 3.11 Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So he's praying here that the Lord would make us to abound in love, that he would establish our hearts. He says here, blameless in holiness, same words, blameless in holiness before our God and Father. So it's undeniable that in the mind of Paul that the end of this thing is we will be standing holy and blameless before God the Father. But then, if we look in the book of Ephesians, we say, okay, where's the next closest place that Paul uses these same words? That's a good way to do Bible study, right? The same guy using these same words, particularly in the same book. He uses the same words in Ephesians 5.25. There we read, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Same two words, holy and without blemish, holy and blameless. Same words that we find in verse 4. So Paul... Paul is clearly saying that Christ is purifying the church. That is the congregation of the saints, the congregation of the holy people. That he is purifying them. He is sanctifying us. That he is washing us that he might present us to himself in splendor. Now that word splendor, magnificent. It can also be translated as glorious. But that his purpose in this is to present us to himself as glorious and in splendor. But the point is that it's Christ is presenting us to himself. And so we have Paul using the very same words in the very same book, pointing to the very same reality, but this time it is Christ before whom we stand. So I, I think, number one, it would be foolish for us to get too dogmatic about either one of these. Not, not only because you've got these two, you've got this, this tension that's going on here, but also because we know that in the last days we shall be standing before both Father and Son and glory we've got to be very careful about trying to separate the work of the godhead we're reminded that at the, at the end of this thing first corinthians 15 28 tells us that at the end of this thing the son shall return the kingdom to the father i want you to think about all the ways that we that we we're told what will happen in the last days and all the ways that we see the working of the father and the working of the son coming together almost as one think about the judgment we're told in first corinthians 5 10 that we all must appear before the judgment seat of christ we're told in Romans 14.10 that we all must stand before the judgment seat of God. Now as an explanation for this perhaps, we look at John 5.27 and we're told that the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment. So that the judgment of Christ is the judgment of the Father. Do you understand? Or consider the way that Jesus himself speaks about, things, speaks about our security in John 10. He says that he gives us eternal life and no one will snatch us from his hand. And that his father is greater than all and no one is able to snatch us from his father's hands. So we have this picture of the son holding us fast. The son holding tightly to us and the father's hand almost overlapping this. So we need to be careful about doing anything to create undue separation between the purpose or the work of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We must remember the clear pattern in Scripture that all things coming from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. All things returning by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. But all that being said, I'm pretty sure it's the Father he's talking about here. It feels like that's the flow of the sentence here. But the reason I just went through that ex exercise, though, I think, because it sets us up to jump over to John 17. I think what we see in John 17 here is a picture, perhaps, of what it means for God to have chosen us as an unholy people, to call us to be a holy people, to make us a holy people, for the Son to present us to himself as a holy people, all to the glory of the Father, who will be the end of all and all. So look with me at John 17. We'll finish there. This is the high priestly prayer. This is um, the upper room discourse. This is the night that Jesus will be betrayed. This is just hours before he will lay down his life for the sake of his, his people. And what's recorded for us here is some very, very private moments. These last few private moments between Christ and the twelve and from this moment forward, he's going to set his face towards Calvary and, and march there. And so the Apostle John, he devotes five full chapters, nearly 20% of his gospel to these precious moments. 
And he, he concludes it with what we find here in John 17. And it really, it feels like something that should be off limits to us. It feels far too intimate for us to have a, have a viewing, to have, to have a hearing of what's being said. As Jesus turns away from his friends and he turns to his father. And there's just, there's something sacred about this. There's something intimate and special. And yet we're allowed to hear it as a great gift of grace from God. And so you'll forgive me if I jump around a bit. But right here in the first verse. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Clearly, you remember Jesus was constantly saying, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come. Well, now the hour had come. And the son was about to glorify the father and he himself was to be glorified as he was lifted up on high as he laid down his life. He says here, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And that's a key phrase all whom you have given him. We've focused on this quite a bit over these last few months, but I want you to circle in your Bible, underline in your Bible, or just stare a hole in it with your eyeballs. That we are people who have been given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's making clear that salvation is not found anywhere else. The salvation is the truest sense of what it means to have eternal life. To be saved is to know God, to intimately know God, to be in communion with God, to be in right fellowship with God, to stand before God holy and blameless. That's the end of this thing. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It is his desire to be back with the Father. You think about the condescension of Christ Jesus and coming and taking upon himself the fullness of humanity, the humiliation of all that he had to endure, the suffering and the pain of all that he went through on our behalf. And he's saying, Father, I've accomplished all that you gave me to accomplish. I've shown you. This world has seen your glory in my face. I'm coming now to be lifted up that you might be glorified in my doing of your will and the saving of these people. And now, Father, once my work is done, receive me back into your presence that there I might have the glory that has always been mine the glory that has always rightfully belonged to me as the infinitely glorious Son of God. But then as we continue reading, we come to recognize that while the main focus of this is the glory of God, the glorification of God, doing the work of God, that on his heart right there in the middle of it is you and me. Remember I told you to circle or to underline or to stare a hole in that thought that God had given his Son a people. We read in verse 6, I've manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 20, he says, because you might be tempted to say, well, he's just talking about the disciples here, right? Because these are the people. These are the people that are in the room right at that moment. Those are the people that have the firsthand experience of hearing Jesus teaching. These are the ones that he has revealed the Father to most intimately in person during his earthly ministry. So maybe all he's talking about here is the disciples that are sitting there in the room. Maybe he's just talking about the 12. But in verse 20, he goes on to say, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying about you. These are the people who sit under the teaching of the apostles. Those who have heard the word, the testimony of Jesus Christ through their lips. He's praying about you. And when you begin to think about what this means, you are a gift. You are a gift from the Father to the Son, a precious gift. Precious gift from the Father to his beloved Son. Paul says, a bride. And this was the custom of the day, wasn't it? That a father would go out and he would secure for his beloved Son a bride. The more money, the more wealth, the more resources, the more loving a father was, the more precious and pure and beautiful the bride would be. You can imagine this, right? If you're a rich dad, you don't go out and get your son an ugly wife. You'll go, you go get her someone that's beautiful and pleasing, someone he's going to enjoy spending his life with. But that creates a problem because we're not suitable. We're not lovely. We're not beautiful. We're not precious. We're not pure. We were soiled and stained by sin. Again, there was nothing lovely in us at all. So would the Holy Father really give to his Holy Son such a pitiful gift? More than this, would the Son of God really lay down his life to purchase such an unworthy bride? Because that's the cost. In order to redeem us from slavery, in order to call us and to win us to himself, he's going to have to lay down his infinitely valuable life. So would the Son of God, would the Father really give the Son such a pitiful looking bride? 
would the son then gladly receive and lay down his life to purchase such a sorry lot of sinners? Yes. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the glory of his grace. And that's exactly what happened. The God of the universe, the rightful owner of all mankind, he looked out in his mind, as it were, where he looked out upon the whole of wretched humanity, and he said, I've chosen these. Not because there's anything better in them than the others. They haven't qualified themselves. They're not more lovely. They're not more beautiful. They don't have the stuff that would make a good bride for my husband. They're the worst. They're the weakest, the most unfaithful. They're nothing. And I choose them, and I give them to my son. It's a gift of love. It's an act of love. And in an act of love, the son gladly receives them. Love for you, love for the son, a bunch of sorry people handed to the son. Isn't she glorious? This wasn't a beauty contest. This wasn't Cinderella. This wasn't even Queen Esther. We didn't get six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments so we can make ourselves beautiful, hoping that the king would choose us. That's the way so many people believe it, isn't it? If the king is going to come, if Prince Charming is going to come and he's going to select for himself a bride, then I must make myself pretty. I must make myself beautiful. And the reality is, you come running out of the back bedroom looking like that three-year-old that got into mama's makeup. You've not made yourself more beautiful. You look like a clown. You begin to see. This was far from a beauty contest that he went out and he chose beggars. Sin-stained rebels off the street. Not only unworthy, but we would not have come on our own. He holds before us the king of the universe, and he says, you could be married to him. And we say, nah. I'll take my chances on the street. And yet this is exactly what he's done. The father chose you, and he gave you to the son. And the son said, Father, I will give my life to make her clean. I will give my life to make her pure. That's exactly what he said on that dark night. Verse 19. For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. For our sake Jesus consecrated himself. He set himself apart. He devoted himself to the work that the Father had given him to do to lay down his life that by his blood we might be cleansed. We might be prepared. We might be made suitable for him. This is what Jesus had come to accomplish. Is there any greater love than this? To not only receive such a filthy gift from the Father but to say I will lay down my life that she may be clean. She may be pure. I will do all that must be done so that I can welcome you into my presence. But then he goes even further than this because Jesus is going away. You see, the purchase of the bride, it happens on that day. But the marriage is not, if you, if you forgive the use of the term, consummated yet on that day. He has purchased us. He is ours. And he says, I'm going away and I'm coming back. I'm going to leave you here for a moment. And so because of this, and this is the way most marriages worked in that day. You would come and you would, you would, you would, exchange the money you would give the price you would you would secure the deal it was locked up and then the son the groom he would go away and he would prepare a place for his bride that he could then come back and take her to himself and this is exactly what Jesus said on that night going back to John 14 John 14 3 he says and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am there you may also be he says I'm going to leave my bride I'm going to go and prepare a place for her going to prepare a place, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to myself. And so we're here, and we're stuck in this in-between time. We're longing for his return. The price has been paid. We are his, and he is ours. We know that he is coming back to get us, but for now we wait, and we long, and we groan. We look forward to that magnificent wedding feast. We look forward to that day when we'll be clothed in perfect righteousness. That's what we look forward to. Revelation 19 talks about this with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So as we are here on this side of things, and we long for Jesus' return, what motivates our holiness is that we want him to be pleased. We want him to be honored. Has there ever been a bride that wanted to walk down the aisle, remove the veil? I know they don't use veils anymore, but re remove the veil and have her husband go, oh. You want him to be honored. You want him to stand before you on that day and say, she is mine. I will spend all eternity with her. I've told this story often, but my grandmother, this would be so foreign to so many of you and probably misogynistic, I guess, or something. My grandmother, though, she used to, she never left her house without her hair done and her makeup on and her 
jewelry and her you know, nice clothes and all that. And I don't remember if it was one of my sisters or a cousin or someone asked her one day, Nita Mama, why do you never leave the house without looking like that? And she said, because everywhere I go, I am the bride of Bob Seal. And I want him to be honored. That's the motivation for our holiness. I belong to Christ Jesus, and I want him to be honored. I want him to be pleased in what he sees. I want to be a beautiful and glorious and splendid bride. And I know this isn't within me to do it. Neither the motivation, nor the power, nor the ability. I don't have the ability in and of myself. But if he sees fit to give me his spirit, to free me from the hold of sin, to show me the depravity of sin, Give me the strength to walk in holiness and I will give my life to doing exactly that. I will be single-minded. The whole of my existence will be in pursuit of that. Not to earn his favor, I already have it. Not to be made right with him, I already am. Because I want to please him and I want the world to know that this is the God I serve. This is the king whom I've been joined together with. So you see the picture and you know that this is true. It can be creepy for little boys, right, to hear the idea that you are a part of the bride. That's the girl side of things, isn't it? And yet deep down in your soul, you know that it's true. When you hear me say these words, I've never had more head bobs in a single sermon in my entire tenure as your pastor. Must have struck a chord this morning. But I see the head bobs and I see nods and I see the smiles and because you know deep down that this is true, that you're the precious bride of the king. You've been chosen as a people that will be gathered together, presented from the father to the son and then purified by the son. And you hear it. And you long for it. You're desperate for that day. And every time we come to the Lord's Supper and we, we take that little morsel together, we know this is just a taste of the greater meal to come. And we can't wait for that day. Can't wait for that day when we're seated around the table. And I don't, it, it, it kind of struck me this week as I was thinking about it. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. But everybody that's sitting at the table, they're all the bride. How's that work? There's no guests. I guess the angels. There's no guests at this dinner. Everyone is the... As a part of the wedding party. But even more incredible, Jesus reveals that he longs for that day too. It's easy for us to long for that. It should be. This life is hard and we don't feel beautiful and we don't feel precious and we don't feel brilliant. And we long for that day when we'll be done with sin once and for all. And we will see Christ as he is, as his glory on full display and we'll be transformed like he is. But Christ longs for this? Dear friends, you must know that that's exactly what he says, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, there it is again, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He longs to have you to himself. He is incomplete. I pray this is not blasphemous for me to say these words. There is an incompleteness to Christ without you. You've been joined to him his precious bride and he says I long for them to be here with me I long for them to see the glory that has always been mine not through glances not through side eyes not through images not through pictures not through shadows not even just through the hearing of the word but through the seeing of the eyes that they would see me as I really am they would see me as I've always been and that they too may be as I am we see the love of the father and the love of the son and we recognize that we're just caught up in all this father loving the son and the son loving the father and inexplicably we're looking around going how did we get here how did we end up here? We recognize that we're the object. We're the, the object of God's redeeming love in all of this. But for now, he's saying that he must go away and he has great concern for his bride. So he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me, I guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That you recognize at the end of this thing as I've continued to say to you, it is your joy. You're not coming to him as a slave. He's looking to you and he's saying, I want you to have my, my joy completed in you. I want you to experience the joy that I have in perfect union with the father. But he's saying here that 
Father, I've accomplished your will. I've done what you have told me to do. I've done what you sent me to do. I've won these people. Not only have I won them, but I've guarded them, and I've kept them, and I've secured them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of perdition. Talking about Judas here because he knows people are going to go, yeah, but what about Judas? How can I be secure if you lost Judas? And he says, Judas was never mine. He was never of us. He went away so that Scripture could be fulfilled. So you could see that my father's plan, as it has been written from the beginning, would be carried out in full. But you must know that I've not lost one of those that you have given me. These are mine because you have given them to me, and I've laid down my life to secure their salvation. And I'm giving my life to guarding them and to keeping them. But Holy Father, I'm coming to you, and I'm asking you that you would keep them in your name. I think about men who marry and then go off to war. Think about men who, not a common thing so much anymore, but you think about during World War II that there were men that they knew they were going off to war. They knew there was a very good chance that they were going off to die, so the analogy breaks down at that level. But these men, they were, knew they were going off to war, and they would find them a bride. They would marry that bride, and then they had no choice but to look to their father and say, would you provide for her while I'm gone? Would you protect her? Would you guard her? Would you guide her? Would you keep other men away? Would you watch out for her while I'm gone? I see this picture of this here. He's saying, don't let one of them be lost. Father, I've done your will. I've done what is pleasing to you. You have given these people to me. Therefore, they are precious. They're more precious than we could ever imagine. And so, Father, I'm asking you to keep them in your name because I know their fickle nature. I know that sin still pulls at their heart. You see, we're a whole lot more like Gomer than beautiful Queen Esther. We're constantly running back to the sin of this world. We're constantly, our adulterous heart, constantly drawing us back into into these false relationships, these empty relationships, these things that leave us with much less than we began. Even though we know we have the king of the universe coming back for us on that appointed day. So he's saying, Father, you must keep them. You must keep the enemy away. You must shut off his lies. You must protect them. So Jesus prays to the Father, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He says that we have a new citizenship, and therefore you are a citizen of where I come from, and where I come from is not this place. This world is no longer your home because this world is not my home. You don't belong here. You belong in heaven with me. And so even as you sojourn here, even as you walk here, even as you live as a foreigner in this place, Father, I'm asking you, I know that you will not take them out of this place because the work is not yet done. Because the last of the saints has not yet been brought in. And so until that day, Father, I ask you to keep them from the evil one. I ask you to protect them. I ask you to guard them. And so verse 17, he goes on. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's by the word that God sanctifies us. That for now, until we can see the glorious face of Jesus Christ as he really is, until that day when the thing that we have heard about, we can actually behold with our eyes that until now it is in the truth that we are sanctified, the precious truth of God, the word of God, that it is by this word that he is sanctifying us, that he is cleansing us. That's what's so important about what we do in here. We're not just showing up to learn some information about God. We're showing up to see God as he is and to be transformed, to be sanctified, to be made holy under the preaching and the teaching and the handling of his word. You understand how sacred what we do here is? He says in verse, excuse me, John 14, verse 16, Jesus promises them that I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. And he is the spirit of truth. We see the truth of God and the way that it molds its people through the working of the word and the working of the spirit. And he's coming and he's making us precious and he's making us pure and he's making us spotless. It's almost as if Jesus has looked to us and he said, my darling, I'm going away, but I will be back. You are precious to me and I love you and you see how I love you because I laid down my life to purchase you. Would I withhold anything from you, my precious bride? I gave my life to have you. I'm giving my life to cleanse you, but you must not fall in love with this world. You must not get caught up in the things of this world, not only because these things will burn up, but because they will soil you. They will spoil you. They will lure your heart away. They will cause you to settle for lesser things. They will cause your heart to be drawn away from me. Do you understand? You must not look to the things of this world because I'm coming back. And so the fight for holiness is a fight for what is better. A fight for holiness is a fight for what is joy. A fight for holiness is to keep our hearts fixed on a Savior who is in heaven, who is coming back for us, and a desperate need, a desperate desire that when he comes, he finds us holy and precious and pure. He says, but I know that the flesh is still here, and I know that the enemy is still here, and I know that sin is still so very alluring to you. I know your constitution. I know your makeup. And so I've prayed to the Father, and my Father is stronger than all, and he will lose none. No one can snatch you from my Father's hand because my Father has given you to me. You are safe in his hand. 
by the power of his word and by the working of his spirit, not only will you not fall away, but you will be cleansed. You will become what you already are. We start to see, how could we ever doubt our security? How could we ever doubt that he will see us through all the way to the end? And again, I believe that's exactly what Paul's pointing us to right here. When he talks about being holy and blameless before him, I think it's this. We're going to talk next week about where those two words, in love, belong. Do they belong to the sentence we've just finished or do they belong to the sentence that comes after? But I think we can apply it both directions for sure. This is an act of love. Love from the Father to the Son. Love for us and giving us to the Son. That It all ends in this. It began in eternity past with the Father choosing us and giving us to the Son at the appointed time, sending his Spirit that he would come and call us to life that then through the working of that spirit and the power of his word, he would cleanse us, he would wash us, he would make us beautiful and pure and blameless and holy. And then the sun comes back and we stand there before him. And he smiles. He's pleased with what he sees. And I pray that this encourages you when the enemy whispers into your ears. Because what will inevitably happen is he will come against you and he will tell you, how could Christ ever want you now? You've crossed the line. You've gone too far. He couldn't possibly receive you into his presence now. So you might as well enjoy what it's left of this life before it ends. But I pray that you're able to call. You're able to recall the word of God. You're able to draw your mind back to heaven. You're able to remember, no, I've been chosen by God. I am precious to Christ. I am being cleansed by the Spirit, and I will endure to the end. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we thank you that we have been chosen in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have given us to him and that he has secured our salvation. We thank you that you have not left us. You will not leave us as we are. Father, that we are becoming holy. So help us to give our lives over to that, to think rightly about what it means to be a holy people, to live as a holy people. And then give us a single-mindedness, an aggression, an urgency to live out this holy life to your honor and to your glory. Father God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand to your feet, please.